Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. In this conversation, I sit down with Chris McIntosh. He's a managing partner at Glenarchy Capital and an author at CapitalistExploits.at. And we sit down and have a wide-ranging conversation on how to position your investment portfolio, very similar to some of the other ones. There are trends like greenwashing that are in full force, but have you analyzed what this really means and the associated investments involved? Greenwashing is just one tiny piece of the bigger picture. What are the second order effects of these shifts and how to position your portfolio accordingly? Chris is incredibly knowledgeable about these topics and goes into great detail on why many materials, such as copper or nickel, might be poised for more upside over the coming years and why investors should be bullish on energy in general. Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast, or even better, leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and keep the thing going. It really, really helps. There you go. Enjoy this conversation with Chris McIntyre. Chris, excited to have you on today. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Other side of the world. Happy to make this time change work. I found you from your fantastic blog post, Investing for the Greenwashing Bubble. And I definitely want to go very deep, a lot deeper into all things climate hysteria, greenwashing. But first, you've been uh, featured on a number of podcasts, but for my listeners that don't know who you are, can you give a little background about who you are? I run a macro um, asset management firm called Glenorchy Capital, where we manage private money for uh, basically high net worth individuals and a few institutions. What we're looking at doing there is really, it was originally designed as a, <clears throat> as a true hedge against mostly against some of the risks that exist in the market and increasingly i believe and we can talk about this as we go forward it is what we're doing is actually more than just a hedge it's it's increasingly one of the only sort of places where we're investing is some of the only places that actually do make sense to invest in 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 the current world which is very unique shall we say so there's that and then the research that we do for that we we decided that we would actually put that out to people that couldn't afford our services or, or didn't want them for whatever reason. Whether you might be some asset manager who who you know you manage your own book. So we've got a massive plethora of different type of types of clients that actually buy research, which is really the culmination of the work that we do for Glenorchy. And so we sort of put that out as like a smorgasbord of our thoughts and our ideas and so on and so forth and so that's that's the crux of it that's that's what i'm doing now i've got a background in investment banking way back 100 years ago that was sort of where i cut my teeth and and then left the corporate world to to sort of um, venture out on my own and i built a real estate business investment and trading business way back in the mid 2000s which was short and sharp so i sort of built that and ran it for about four five years and then sold that all up in september of 2006 <clears throat> that was just based on a trend that i sort of identified there which was this 
ridiculous pushing down and, and of interest rates. So subsequent to that, I then built a venture capital firm based on what I deemed to be a, a large trend unfolding, which was a movement of capital into risk risk assets. When you don't, when you can't find yield in the market, which is certainly the increasing problem that we've had for the last two decades, really, in order to have an, a portfolio that returns what you would want, one has to take more risk somewhere. You know, when your when your yield component, your bonds are not returning what they should realistically or theoretically return, then you have to get get that alpha from somewhere. And so that somewhere is 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 in riskier assets. And so I asked myself, I said, okay, well, what is the riskiest asset class, if you will, and that's venture capital. So that was one component behind it. The other component was while that was taking place, we had a significant move in terms of bureaucracy for companies which are going public. The costs to going public were just increasing dramatically. The the compliance, all of that bullshit that you have to do just got worse and worse. And so it what it meant for you know businesses was that the that carrot of accessing the capital markets wasn't as juicy as as it might have looked otherwise and the stick was was getting bigger and so i was like money's just going to stay private why would it go public you know is that dynamics changing anyway so long story short i built a venture capital firm to try and take advantage of that shifting capital which worked and then by 20 or well, actually by 2015 i looked at that and thought this stuff's nuts this is just you know it's bizarre and, and I can't be putting my own money into this anymore. And, um, and hence I can't be putting client money into it. So that I sold in 2016. As we now know, the market carried on for another at least two years to the extent where we had all sorts of fun like WeWork and, and all of that. So, and, and while that was taking place, I've been doing really what I'm doing now and looking at the markets and the sort of geopolitics of the world and so on and so forth. And really just training my own book with along with a good, very good friend of mine, Brad, who now runs Glenorchy with me. And, and then we eventually kind of came to the idea or the conclusion that, you know, this opportunity in front of us now is so extreme and so bizarre and so huge that to, to not do it at a, at a greater level of scale would be doing it doing ourselves and in and injustice. And so we kind of took the leap to to set up what we're doing now. So that's that's here we are. And we're sort of I think in the first or second inning of of what I think is probably the third major trend of my professional career um, yeah. unfolding. Interesting back in those un earlier, not so much the unprecedented times that we live in now, but I mean that shift into the risk assets, all, all very much aligned. So this third wave, when you talk about this, this big third, third move of your investing career, you're talking specifically about this green wash bubble. Is that, is that correct? That's part of it. That's just simply part of it. The, 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 the main component behind it, I believe is basically inflation. We've had this deflationary impact, which really was post World War II. So post-World War II, we had globalization and expansion of the pie. The pie was like everybody wanted a piece of the pie. 
and we kept expanding. And you had, you know, you had NAFTA and you had, you know, international trade agreements that were that were put in place. It was really just bringing more and more participants into that global economy, and and so that is always a deflationary impact, especially given that we added what four billion people or something of that nature to the global workforce that weren't previously in it. And those 4 billion people were, the, were prepared to work for $10 a day. And so that's always going to have a deflationary impact on goods and services and everything else that comes out of that particular melting pot. So, so we've had, that was, you know, an extraordinary trend that we've had really, yeah, since bread and woods and it sort of grew and grew and grew. And, we we could see that that was changing geopolitically. That was changing in as early as 2014, 15. Sort of rising nationalist interests. It's 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 almost like entropy. So you have something that that has a momentum, and as it wanes, your your desire to get more and your ability to get more out of the squeezing that particular orange diminishes, and so the, the whole psychology of individuals and the psychology of nations and the psychology of of cultures and everything else goes with that and so that that then translates as well into politics and so you could sort of see this this angst coming through and and so we feel we felt that that was going to certainly go, go about causing a shift in from deflation to inflation where, where that globalization was an inflationary impact, we were going to go through a deglobalization or, or a lessening of globalization, even if, if you want to think of it that way, which even if it just changed at the margins, would have added a significant change on asset classes, largely as a consequence of this status quo situation that, that you and I have experienced for our entire adult lifetimes, which has been that experience was pretty easy. You just invest in certain asset classes. You could sit back and go and drink a beer and not worry too much about it. You yes, enjoy your cheaply politics. manufactured goods and all of these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and what that does is you have that feedback loop where you become more and more certain with outcomes because the longer something lasts, the more certain you are that it'll continue to last. When in actual fact, that, that may be the case, but not always. And certainly where the dynamics underlying it are changing and it continues it's it's like it's like building a tower that goes higher and higher and you don't build your base any wider it's at some point it's going to fall over because it doesn't have the ability to to stand the the, the infrastructure or the foundation of it is insufficient for its continued height and so that's broadly what happens in any market in any bull market and that's what uh, we felt was going to take place with respect to that deflation versus inflation component. And again, we only needed little changes for that to be fairly dramatic when you look at the various sectors that we're interested in. Many of them are down 80-90% from their highs. Many of them have massively curtailed supply. I could talk about all sorts of industries. I'd throw out something like uranium. Uranium industry is roughly 90% of the companies that existed in the previous bull don't exist at all anymore. They're gone, vaporized. They just don't exist. And so what happens is you have a concentration because that industry still exists, but the participants in it are, are much smaller, but they now own 100% of the industry. 
So that's a concentration of that industry. And you know, that's been happening in many different sectors. So that's sort of where we're very interested. And that provides one with a significant hedge, but also coincidentally an sort of asymmetric opportunity on a go forward basis. So that broadly is, is what we're looking at. And then there's things like the greenwashing you mentioned, which come into that. So energy as, a, as an example, there's this hysteria around climate change and the, the desire to rid ourselves of carbon emissions. And so the target for that has been oil and gas industry largely amongst others. And, and so we've seen incredible divestment of capital out of those sectors, out of those companies. And even within companies themselves, many of them in the Western world have, have basically committed suicide or are in the process of committing suicide, whereby they're saying, yes, we're an oil company. BP is a very good example. So BP have come out and said, we're no longer going to be investing in fossil fuels. So if, if you do want to be long energy and, and buying or long fossil fuels and you go out and you buy BP, you're not, you're not getting that because they've said that they're not going to be doing that. And so all of that contributes to supply destruction, enormous supply destruction. And then the companies that do want to play in that space can't get funding. You try and get funding as a pension fund, as a sovereign wealth fund, They've all been divesting of those sectors. And I say all, it's not in the Western world they've been divesting of that. Right. So, so that presents us with a, a very unique set of opportunities because unless some miracle comes along, we are not, this transition that it keeps being talked about is, is, it's not a transition. It's, it's, it's mathematically not happening anywhere near to the extent that the mainstream media is putting out. And even where it is gaining some sort of ground, the old world, if you will, isn't going away in any shape or form. And that's been true of mankind's history. From when we transitioned from wood to coal, when that took place, we didn't. We continued to utilize the same amount of wood as an energy source. What we did was we added capacity, and then we used coal. And coal became the dominant force. And then when we transitioned from coal to natural gas and, and nuclear, coal remained. We didn't. It just what happened was the overall share of energy consumption got taken up by natural gas and oil and nuclear, but what happened was we just added energy consumption right it's not a it's not a net net zero world in that we every time we've had the ability to come up with some new technology we've expanded we haven't said oh that's a flat world we don't it's a bit like a cell phone right? i remember we used to just be able to make a phone call and with the old bricks now then they added capacity now you've got like how many gigabytes or bloody terabytes or whatever of, of storage capacity and everything else on your phone and you know even 10 years ago we would have looked at it and said do we need all of that and we would have we would have scratched our heads and not not really necessarily be able to come up with what we would do with all of that storage capacity 
but yeah, we are today. Now we're streaming videos. You and I are talking on some, you know, so we just add capacity. The same thing is true in the energy world. And that's always been true. So what we're looking at now is this idea that we're going to not only add this new component of renewables, which in themselves don't mathematically um, compute, but let's pretend that they did. Let's pretend that we, we were going into this world where solar and wind and unicorn farts were going to be the biggest thing. We would historically, we would still utilize natural gas, coal, oil, all those old things to the same extent. And so when we look at that space, it's not actually possible at this point in time, given the investments that are, are, are in those spaces. And so the only way that corrects itself is with an increase in the price of those particular commodities. So, so that's a unique set of circumstances. The other flip side of that is if we do look at this renewables, and I'm not discounting renewables entirely, there is a space for them and certainly there will be technological advancements and we will have a, there will be more usage of them. Be that as it may, if we're going to transition to this world, if you look at the underlying factors, which few are prepared to do, and we say, okay, what would it take to actually achieve this? In other words, if we just take, we, we did a study which we published for our publication oh, probably about a year ago now. What we did was we looked at the United Kingdom just as, as an example. And we said, okay, the government there has come out and they've said that this is what their projected plans are for this you know, carbon neutral world. And by 2030, they wanted to have 50% of the cars or electric and da 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 da. Anyway, so, okay, fine. Sounds good. Sounds wonderful. What is it going to take to actually get there? We're going to need. Uh, incredible investment in battery technology. We're going to have to then power those batteries, which means a, a massive build out of the grid because the grid cannot, the grid can't compete and can't, is struggling now. So if we're going to move to this, we're going to have to have an in, incredible investment into the power grids. And you basically, setting the power grids aside, just looking at the battery components in that, what we found was that by, to, to achieve these goals that they had said, we were going to consume all of 2018's copper supply, global copper supply. And so that would have meant that every other country in the world would no longer utilize any copper. And, and we found the same things with cobalt and lithium. And, and then, that, again, that's not even looking at the, the energy, the grid build-out, which is required, which requires an enormous amount of steel and, requires an, and you can't make steel without coal metallurgical coal that's how we make steel and so these green ideas of saying oh it's just electricity it's like well where does electricity come from it comes from power plants non-renewable sources non right? typically non-renewable sources and so even if we look at wind turbines they take a fuckload, fuckload of, of steel you can't make steel without the coal so we need to have coal mines and the big machines required to actually put these things up, right? I mean, they're flattening the earth. They're bringing in diesel-powered trucks. They're put on diesel-powered diesel ships. Incredible to... amounts of diesel. Right. And so, so 
it's all fine and good, you know, this facade of, oh, it's going to be green and you put, put up pretty pictures of flowers and birds tweeting and you go, this is what the world's going to look like. And you go, cool, let's break it down. And you break it down and you realize that it's a complete facade. It's just absolute garbage. Now, to a certain extent, we don't actually, we don't need to rant and rave about this. We can simply look at those markets and say, fine, one or two things is going to happen. Magic happens, which is renewables, but it's going to require enormous amounts of copper, cobalt, steel, etc. And you look at those markets, copper's all-time low. Many, many investments, investment funds, and we're not one of them, fortunately, because we don't answer to any, anybody other than ourselves, are not allowed to invest in them. And so... And so in, if that world is the one that takes over, we're going to have a massive bull market in those underlying resources that are required to make that happen. And history would indicate that's not going to happen, and we still will utilize these other resources, and those have been divested of massively. And so you kind of can play. It's a, it's a heads-I-win, tails-I-win situation to a certain extent, which is extraordinary because I've not typically seen that sort of set up in my investing career. So that's one of the components that we're very interested in. And then further to the, to the topic of deflation versus inflation, when you increase the cost of energy, you increase the cost of everything. How do you manufacture when, when your cost of energy is higher. Well, you do, but you have to pass on that cost in some shape or form. And so you might not make any more widgets. In fact, you might make less widgets, but they're going to cost more. It's just the way it is. And then once you've made them, you've got to transport them. And pass on that increased cost right to the end consumer, right? So that it's, yeah. To summarize, this transition will likely happen, but it's just not as quickly and not as clean of a turn off this old and turn on the new as a lot of people are pricing in. Is that kind of the, the core thesis here? I don't think transition is the right word mm. because, and I know we've utilized it in the past. We've utilized the word transition when we moved from coal to natty gas and, mm. and oil. But if we go and we break down those numbers and we take a look at what's happened in those markets, the reality is that we still consume actually more coal today than when coal was the sole dominant source. But that's and, probably and so, net consumption so, is up, up, right? So even, even if we just use the same amount, yes, we might have this quote-unquote transition, which is, which is really just meaning we're going to utilize other sources of energy more than we utilize those. We will still need those source of, source of, sources of energy. And that's at this point in time going to be very difficult because they're not, there's been no investments made in them. And so, so we're setting ourselves up for a, for a problem. And, and then as if that wasn't bad enough, and I hate to be a, a, a bringer of bad news, but while that's taking place, there's also a geographical component or a geopolitical component. So there's this extraordinarily strong push in Western nations to divest of fossil fuels and to punish anybody that does. Now, 
if we took Germany, Germany is a very good example. So Germany has been at the forefront of, of going green, we'll call it. And so they got rid of their coal-fired coal power stations, their coal mines. They got rid of their nuclear because they said that was dodgy. And they now have the, the highest cost of electricity in all of Europe. They also import their energy from France, which is nuclear, and Poland, which is coal, and Russia, which is natural gas. And so all that they've done is that they've, they've, third, they've just created a third party yeah. for their energy sources while costing them more. So they can stand up and say, oh, we're clean and green because Germany's dotted with these horrendously ugly wind um, turbines, which they've used and don't, don't work basically to the extent that they really need to clearly. And the other component behind that is they have subjugated themselves to foreign players because you cannot, and I keep saying this, you cannot have political security when you don't have energy security. And so now, you know, and, and while they've been doing this, they've been pushing this through the EU, through the United Nations, through the World Economic Forum, through these international monetary funds, these various organizations, they've been forcing other countries to toe the line and, and do the same thing. And so much of Western Europe is under their thumb. And what ultimately is happening is that much of Western Europe is now under the thumb of Russia because that's where the energy comes from. And so this is happening on a global scale. And when, when, when oil traded at minus 40 back in February of this year, one of the reasons that took place was obviously the lockdowns and the subsequent demand destruction. But while that was taking place, the Saudis and the Russians looked at this and said, this is our opportunity to completely vaporize our market. Our, our, our competitors. And so they just flooded the world with oil, knowing that they were doing it at below cost, knowing that nobody needed it, which incidentally, one of our trades then was to buy tankers because they all their above ground storage ran out. And where are you going to put it? You put it on tankers. So, but that's just an aside. The point is they put out a business largely shale. Nigeria has shuttered many of their wells. Mexico, the same thing. Venezuela already shot themselves in the head by instituting Marxism, and so they're not a player any longer. And what we've had is this extraordinary concentration of wealth in the Middle East and Russia. And that's where we stand today. So it's not just a sector play, but it's a geographical, geopolitical play at the same time. So one needs to be a little bit careful with respect to how you execute on that trade. Absolutely. Um, like I said, don't don't go buying BP thinking that you're going to want to be long energy. Right. And I, I definitely want to get into that, like how an investor can actually play this. But I mean, the no country has political security without energy security. I think that it's and you've said it multiple times in your blog post, but it is a very, very valid point. But I think at the same time, there's no... There's no way that the world runs without energy, whether it be produced from fossil fuels or clean energy or what have you. 
I mean, the world runs on energy. And I know you've done quite a bit of work, at least in that, that blog post about breaking down the different types of energy sources. I mean, from an investor perspective, I mean, are, are, are you bullish on uranium? You're bullish on oil and gas? Like walk me through kind of how you choose, choose to play this, I guess. The answer is an easy one. And the answer is that we're bullish on pretty much all of them. So they all have different dynamics behind them. The, the critical thing that's, that's really extraordinary at this point in time is there's two things. One is we have extraordinary supply destruction, okay, across the energy space. In the Western world, we've taken this view that anybody that's in the fossil fuel space is, you and I would, would be better off beating babies to death with baseball bats than getting into that energy industry. It's you, so you, true. I mean, if any of these things, if, if BP came out with a cure for COVID, people would still hate it, right? They're, they've they've yeah. divested their opening coffee coffee stores at this point. And it was like yeah. the market rewarded it. <laughs> it's very, totally. it's very unloved to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. You could look at that and say, wow, you know, in a normal world, and we don't live in one of those, in a normal world, you would have this transition where capital was actually making that decision. Capital was saying, we're not investing in this, but we're investing in that. And that being an alternative, right? And so when you look at the wind and solar and these, these, uh, these alternatives, some of the solar companies are flying. That's, you know, that's done well for us. But when you look at the underlying components, you say, okay, well, how do you make... Tesla. Tesla's flying because people are going, oh, well, we're going into this world where everything's going to be an electric car. If you want to be long Tesla, and I think that's a ridiculously stupid thing to do, but let's just say you wanted to, you buy nickel. That's what you buy. Nickel is dirt cheap. There's insufficient supply of it. If we're going to have thousands and thousands of these electric vehicles in the roads, we're going to need so much more nickel than is currently being mined. And nobody's investing in it. And so we're interested across the energy space and we're playing it from multiple different angles. It's, so it's there's that component. The other component, which we alluded to, touched on, which is the geographical, geopolitical one, is, is, is I think, more important than people realize. So, for example, if you and I went and we invested into a an oil and gas company in Texas. Now, at the moment, there's obviously the elections going on. We're going to find out what that all transpires to. But if the Democrats got in, they've already told us that they're going to ban fracking. Okay, so you, we might, there might be a boom in natural gas, but if we've gone and invested in a company that's in that geographical location, it goes to zero or close to. So you you we've got to be very careful increasing across the sort of geopolitical space as to what do you invest in in what country and where and so watching those trends is is very important you know we we are four maybe five months ago now went through our entire clients portfolios and we broke down companies by domicile where they're listed and then where their assets are. And so 
when when you break down each, each of these companies, you look at it and you say, okay, if you've got assets in a particular jurisdiction, which is not looking favorable towards that industry, that's a real problem. If the company itself is domiciled in that region, that's less of a problem. And I'll give you a description, an example of how this, this is likely to play out. So I grew up in Africa, in, in South Africa in particular, when the, they had something called black empowerment coming in. And basically what they said was, okay, you've got a company here. We need to change the ownership structure of this. We need to give 10, 15%, whatever it is, towards this new group of people. And basically, you know, that's what's going to happen. And so what the companies did, especially if you were a large corporate that had assets all over the world, what they did was they said, okay, we got, let's say, a mine in Namibia, and then we've got stuff in Australia, and we might have something else in Indonesia, and then we've got some of these assets in, in South Africa. What they did was they just stripped them out. And they said, okay, we'll form a new entity here. This, this new entity here owns all these, these South African assets. That gets deleted down because we don't have a choice. They're going to take it, and that's what it is. But all these other entities that they now created, they just go and create a new entity in, in say, London, that listed on the London Exchange, and that we just buy the Namibian assets or the Indonesian assets or whatever it was, and, poof, and you're off, it's gone. And that's what happened. And so they, it didn't. So, so for for the for the comp, the countries coming in and the bureaucrats coming in trying to steal essentially those assets, they could do that where they were domi- where, where those assets were under their own purvey. So that's where it's important. So we've looked at our whole portfolio and we've looked at the various countries and which sort of path they're going down and said, okay, we want to have them in favorable jurisdictions. If, if this does happen and you've got a company that's say listed in Canada, which is really resource capital of the world, but they, the assets are in Ukraine, doesn't matter. Because if that hits them, they'll just go fine. We'll set up a new company in Ukraine, we'll sell the assets to them and we'll just walk away. You can't, like, what are you going to do? But where the, where the assets are domiciled in that jurisdiction where they can steal it, that's a, that's a significant threat. So the other side of that is just actually looking for, you know, companies that are sort of outside of, of regions in the world that we're having this, this, this hysteria take place. We just don't have an interest in, in taking that risk. So... It's a, it's a very interesting time to be investing because it's, it's got so many different elements and components that are taking place. There, there yeah. are. There's so many moving parts. And something that I'm, I'm always thinking about is if, it's, if there becomes some, somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because of capital flows, right? You may make the right call, but because of the political environment or the the way that capital is flowing, you know, that, that correct thesis doesn't play out, you know, and you're just, you're fighting against these forces that are so much bigger that even though this makes sense in theory, you know, you're, you're fighting against bigger forces. So that that's, that's always in my head with a lot of these plays, because in my mind, it's something like nickel. So if Tesla's takes off and everybody's driving a Tesla and uh, UK bans all fossil fuel cars, even though logically it doesn't make any sense. Like from your article, I mean, passenger cars are 6% of the CO2 emissions. Like it's nothing. (laughs) 
don't focus you're you're looking at you're you're measuring yourself to the wrong the wrong thing but you know if if every country in the world bans fossil fuel gasoline powered engines then everybody's going to drive a tesla and that's that's just that's the play so nickel goes wild I, I think this is where I always, and this is, there's a buyer and seller on every, every market, right? So there is. And, and there's other components, you know, I love looking at second order effects. So, because sometimes the first order effects get priced in this instance, they're not, not yet, but the second order effects of what you just described are higher prices on everything. If we're all to drive Teslas around, what will literally will happen is is blackouts we will have insufficient energy to power those vehicles it's that simple it's mathematically going to happen and so what all you need to do is go and travel to some third world countries that experience blackouts and none i'll tell you now none of them experience deflation why because <laughs> because the cost of cost of producing everything goes up in a, in a given day let's say you're going to work nine hours but three of those hours there's a blackout well you're just not as productive as you were before it doesn't you know or you're going to bring in generators diesel generators right. that's what's happening yeah right in fact one of my clients a very wealthy gentleman who lives in california bought himself a diesel generator because he's sick of of that's for his home so, so his roof is covered um, in uh, solar panels and he drives a Tesla too, right? <laughs> I don't think he does, but, 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 but the reality is that you, you, you do what you have to do. That's just for his own comfort. But if you're running a business in, I'm just using California as a, as a example, but wow, this is, this um, is the, the prime candidate for a this, lot of this is, right? this is what happens. Yeah. And so then you get inflation across the board, actually stagflation. And then basically many of our, our other positions go up as well because you can't manufacture at, with the same productivity levels when your cost of energy is higher or when not just the cost of energy, but you actually have, your availability of energy isn't there. Well, if you don't, for an hour every day, you don't have power. Well, that's, I don't know, 10% of your, your productivity that's, that's gone away. Your optics are still the same. You're still going to pay the same salaries. You've still got the same rent. You, you're like it's. You can't you can't plug that hole any other way than charging more for the for the goods that you got to produce. And then also, what happens is that the marginal players in that space can't make it work, so they go away. What happens? That's less supply. And so, you you, you know, I've seen this across Africa, especially because. You know they don't have they don't have functioning markets and and energy is such a big component behind it people don't realize that and we're going we're barreling full speed ahead down this path of climate hysteria which is backed by as far as i can tell junk science and it is what it is i mean not here to sort of i'm actually not here to to make an argument about climate change you can have whatever view you wish on that. I'm here to make money. And, and so that's, it is what it is. And coupled with that is this deglobalization. And with deglobalization, what you get is national nationalism. So 
I mean, I've written articles about this as far back as three years ago, saying that we're going to get trade wars. We're going to get sanctions. We're going to get impediments into functioning markets. And that's supply destruction. The other thing that is likely to take place is we're going to get nationalization of resources. When, when these things become critical, governments will step in and go, this is too important. We A, have to maybe support it, or B, we're not going to export it anymore, or you know, it becomes of national security interest. And, and, and that's where we're headed to. Absolutely. And we we got a taste of that with COVID in the US, right? Like massive supply chain disruptions, because we've been outsourcing this for decades, you know, at at such a lower cost and so much that we've basically forgotten how to do these things on our own. And then you, you pick it apart a little bit and you realize, actually, we don't even have the capacity to build this on our own anymore. It's been outsourced and, and, and as a as a byproduct of globalization, which is great for the consumer, lower cost, but when it becomes national security and disasters, it's, it gets pretty pretty nasty pretty quickly. I'm curious. I mean, you've got on on your Twitter, you you have quite a few uh, tweets about COVID situation. I, it seems like we're pretty well aligned with that. And we're recording this on November 3rd. The presidential elections are going on in the US right now here in the next couple hours. Well, I mean, honestly, we're not going to know for weeks, right? But you know, these, we, we should start to have some numbers and uh, you never know. I'm curious what sort of, what, what are you monitoring right now to, what would uh, change your mind about these, the, these investment thesis that you have whether it be prolonged COVID shutdown or change of power in the U.S. or, or, or you know, God forbid, some something worse. Like, what are you, what are you monitoring, keeping your very, thumb on the pulse? Of? Very little. I mean, there's there's some plays that we've got around the around the elections. Largely, that's been ammunition stocks, which we bought three four months ago, which have done very well, and we're holding on. But in terms of the rest of the portfolio. We, they were representing deep value before 2020 came along. And what it's done now is it's just, it's just made them, you know, I couldn't have written a novel around what's taken place and had it been believed. And it's, it's just created the most extraordinary setup for, for these sectors. I, I just, I couldn't have imagined it. So, you know, it's a bittersweet situation in that, it's, it's very exciting to see that taking place and to see the inevitability of what is, is going to transpire and being able to hopefully position accordingly to, to profit from it. And I say bittersweet because what's happening is not good. It's not good for the world. It's not good for humanity. It's not good for societies. And, and I, I, I give up all the profits that we have made and all that we will make to have it look something different but i can't the world doesn't work like that and so the you know the first thing you got to do is just try and protect yourself and and work with what you have so you know these shutdowns are 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 creating huge supply destruction those supply chains that you mentioned have been decimated they are being in the process of being changed many companies have to 
rearrange how they go about sourcing products. And that's without things like sanctions. And at the same time, many of them have gone away. So again, we have ex extraordinary supply destruction. I mean, agriculture is one of the spaces that we've literally been looking at that for about five years and we've never done anything about it. And now we're, we're long and very long. But, you know, and I've spoken to CEOs across the world in that space. It is phenomenal. And I hate to say it, but we're, we are likely to have food shortages and famine within the next, easily the next 48 months. Just absolutely myopic legislature that's been put forward. You know, these lockdowns are just absolutely insane. To give you some numbers, and this is from the UN in terms of the number of people that are now globally on the brink of starvation, for every one person that's died of COVID, and that's with COVID and from COVID, so those numbers are a little bit skeptical anyway, but even if we just take that number, for every one person that's died, we now have 35,000 that are on the brink of starvation likely to die. So to, the idea that this is about health is just complete bollocks. And we haven't considered the suicides and the alcohol abuse and drug abuse, all of the attendant issues that, have, that are yet to come and that are hitting already. So it is what it is. Largely what we're looking at is, is an extraordinary shift of political, social, and economic power from the West to the East. And it's not necessarily because the East is screaming ahead. They literally are just sitting there watching the West destroy itself and championing it on. You know, I just saw China coming out saying, yeah, we're um, all for going carbon neutral by 2060. Yay. And they're building over 100 coal-fired power stations. So they pay lip service to it. They champion their competitors to, to carry on down this path. They champion them to carry on with lockdowns. They lock China, down for four China's weeks. taking the, the long game with all of this, right? They're, they're fighting a war and the rest of the West can just uh, preoccupy ourselves with these little battles and our four-year elections and our, our little initiatives that over the next five years. But China's always thinking 100 years out and how they're just going to going to crush us right and it's securing food security and land in all of these places that are agricultural rich and yeah playing playing yeah. the very long game that's the that's the unfortunate reality with a lot of this and i think i think for me i i whenever i have these conversations and start thinking about these you know and i i don't want to go down the whole capitalism is broken short-termism discussion of those things but i mean it, it's quite easy to get very pessimistic and at every scenario ends in pitchforks and torches and something very dire. But from an investor perspective, one, how do you stay optimistic? And two, what do you, what do, you do to protect your portfolios or the portfolios of your, your clients in these, when thinking about like these long, long-term moves like this? It's a great question. I guess the first thing to realize is that the world's been through massive transitions in the past. And our ancestors, at some point in time, had to make decisions that 
mean that we are still here today and they were difficult decisions. The right thing to do a hundred years ago, if you were in Europe, was to go to the United States. That was the, like, that was the best thing that you could do. It was the best thing for you. It was the best thing for your offspring. It's just the way it was. Now, that would have been difficult if, if we were German-speaking or Italian or Polish or anything, Russian. The, that, that it was difficult didn't, didn't make it the wrong decision. It was still the right decision. I feel like we're in a similar situation today. And so when you, when you look at the long arc of history, what we're experiencing now isn't all that unique. It has unique attributes to it. It has technology and it has a whole lot of different attributes. But in, in terms of the, the actual experience itself, it's not that unique. So I think to a certain extent, that lends you some sort of comfort. You go, hey, humanity's been through this sort of stuff before. We'll come through it. What you then got to realize is that it, is, it does represent danger and it does represent opportunity. So I think we can't be myopic to it. And in order to move forward, the best, for me, the best way to keep your own sanity is to have a plan and to, and to work towards that plan and com- constantly watch and assess to see whether you're on track so that you have some level of control. The worst feeling that you can have is where you don't have control of your life. And, and I think that's the... So for me, the, the answer to your question is, how do you gain some control? So in our investment portfolios, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Or oh, that's what we believe we're doing. We might be wrong, but we feel like we have a very strong grasp of what's going on, how best to build a diversified portfolio to, to adequately manage that. Then there are other issues, obviously, around where might one locate oneself. And, and you know, these are, those are separate topics of discussion. We can certainly talk about them some other time. But, you know, there, there's... When you get the sort of massive transitional shift that we're happening now of wealth, that's a massive opportunity. At some point, you're going to look back and, and people will be going, wow, if you could have like just got that half right, you know, that was phenomenal. You know, I, I spent some time just recently with an old friend in, in Vienna and he's of Russian origin. And we were talking about, you know, the, the, the history of Russia and his background and his family, grandparents and so on and so forth. And one of the things that we, was really phenomenal is, you know, when the USSR broke up, those who understood what was going on just made out like gangsters. I mean, literally, that's, <laughs> you know. Now, so, and I'm not suggesting going and stealing things, but to a certain extent, you kind of have the opportunity today to steal things, to get them for prices that are just absurd. So, you know, that's, that's a huge opportunity, I think, to, to, to have that kind of set up the experiences that we're having today, which are troubling and they are stressful and, and create anxiety. The way to 
dispense with that anxiety is to have a plan to, to, to tackle it head on. That's, that's the best way to do it, I think. Yeah, so that makes sense. I mean, so a lot of the things that we have talked about, I mean, basic materials, oil, energy, uranium, like these are these are kind of the core thesis that we've discussed. But I'd be curious your opinions on store value assets. What role does gold play in one of these well-diversified protected portfolios? And then the other thing that I'm always constantly uh, thinking about is something like Bitcoin. For me, you know, a billionaire, somebody very wealthy, there's only a few ways that you can ever run out of money in your lifetime, and it's hyperinflation or confiscation confiscation from the government. You're constantly doing all of these things to protect against those two main disastrous consequences of having so much money, right? The, the allure of something like Bitcoin, the call, it, 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 the risk return opportunity are getting too, too great to actually completely write off at this point. The fact that you can memorize 12 words, strip down uh, bare naked and walk across a border. And as long as you can log into internet, you know, and find somebody that's willing to buy that on the other side, you, you have access to this wealth, which you certainly can't do with your stock portfolio or gold bar. I'd be curious uh, your thoughts on gold and then Bitcoin as as they play into a piece into a well-diversified portfolio? Well, gold's the easy one. I mean, you don't buy gold to get rich. You just buy it as, a, as an insurance policy in a store of wealth. And so it makes complete logical sense to own gold. And I would countenance to, to say that owning gold and owning gold equities are different. And even within the gold equity space, because, you know, a lot of clients will come to me and go, I'm good. I'm all in gold. I'm like, okay, what do you own? And they're like, they'll list a bunch of junior miners and, and, you know, which can easily go to zero. And so physically, so there's, you know, those are different. I just want to make that point because a lot of people sort of go gold and uh, buy a bunch of junior miners or something like that, which is not the same thing at all. Well, myself included, um, right? I buy GLD, which is you're trusting that somebody has gold in a vault and they've issued you paper. And it's like, well, it's kind of gold exposure. It's better than no gold exposure, but it's certainly not the same as a bar of gold in my safe that I can shave mm. off pieces for, you know, bread or whatever. That's it. If you're looking at inflationary environments, which I believe we're coming into the, the best returns in that space are historically have always been energy, copper, way outperforms gold. So, so I do think that's likely to happen again. So we're bullish gold. We have an allocation towards gold as well as gold miners. So that's, you know, I don't, I don't have anything intelligent to say other than anybody else that you would have spoken to who, who is in that space. With respect to Bitcoin, you know, it's something that everything that you said is true. It has an asymmetry to it, even more so now, I think, as, as governments clamp down on freedoms of every stripe. And certainly the coming digital currencies that the Europeans, I think they're going to be the first out of the gate with, with the European digital currency. They certainly look like they'll be the first out of the gate with this great reset that they're talking about which is likely just to be asset confiscation, basically stealing people's money and paying off debts. 
and creating a situation where you are tied into this Orwellian, dystopian, technologically driven world, I don't think it's going to work. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to see capital shift. It's already shifting. I just spent weeks traveling around Europe, speaking to some very smart, very wealthy people. And they all understand. They all have at least some knowledge of what's going on and are are doing their best to take measures against it. And so Bitcoin comes into that in that, as you mentioned, it allows that transferability very, very easily. What concerns me with Bitcoin, and we have an allocation to it, what concerns me with it is that the, the very reason that is, it is probably the, the most, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's probably the best asset I can think of to own in a sort of a world where, they, where, where these things are being implemented, okay? And the very reason that it is the best asset, I think, is also probably the very reason that they're going to ban it. So, so there's an asymmetry there. Now, what, what we're going to have to watch for is when they, and I'm convinced they'll ban it, when they ban it, whether it gets banned across the board, whether every country comes on board with that particular thing or not, is, is what's going to be important because all you need is some escape valve where some countries, maybe Japan, Japan's always been very pro Bitcoin. They've always, they've already said it's a currency, da, 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 da. You know, does that does just not flood towards those exit valves? Because you've got to have an exit valve. The game is just insane, right? I mean, it just takes one country to go, actually, it's not banned here and we hold part of our reserves in it. Sorry. Exactly. (laughs) So, 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 Again, what I'm saying is that the risks behind Bitcoin are becoming elevated every single day at the same time that the rewards for it are becoming elevated every single day. So now the question is, what do you do about that? I believe that you just manage that position in terms of your position sizing. Don't make it something where if you're wrong, it wipes you out. And if you're, so you want to, if you're right, you're going to do fine, right? And you will probably look back and go, I wish I'd put more in. Fine. Of course. Rather be that guy than the guy who's like, I got screwed. I'm like, so that's my thoughts on Bitcoin. I I wouldn't be holding, personally, I I wouldn't want to own more than like 10% allocation. But I'm not putting that, like, yeah, make yeah. up your own mind. Yeah, it varies by person. I mean, all yeah. all of the all of the disclaimers that we need to put there. It it sounds like copper and energy. I mean, for the average investor, what's what's the easiest hands hands off way of of adding copper, these copper exposures? I mean, uh, Freeport is is probably the the most easy way to go about getting access to copper. That's the biggest, uh, most liquid well-run company that is diversified across the globe it tracks copper pretty well is many i mean i guess you could you could go along the chilean peso there's problems there and then chile is doing some really stupid things at the moment so as as are so, most countries <laughs> as are many countries as are many countries it's fascinating to watch 
to some extent, it actually that elimination of potential candidates makes it easier because you're basically just scraping out going, no, no, no. And then you kind of look at what you're left with, which makes your investment process somewhat easier. Yeah. And then I, that makes a lot of sense. The, the unfortunate reality with Freeport is when I, when I was in college and I decided that selling naked puts was, was a great way to make up money, you know, picking up pennies in front of steamrollers. I actually, I bought a lot of Freeport as a young, poor college student when, when, yeah, I was forced to buy some. And then energy, I mean, oil and gas, uranium, everything. And nickel for the, the the solar play like what's what's kind of your play there I'd, I'd spend the next half hour just running through all the different positions but what i would say is this look at those sectors and then go and do your homework and and realize that every company has its own set of risks you can have a risk that the ceo runs off with the cfo's wife you could have the risk that a government does something really stupid and they've got a particular asset in that particular, in that country where the government's doing something stupid. Like there's just so many different risks that you have for any one company, which you don't have with a particular commodity. So part of you, part, part of you would say, well, then you just buy the commodity. No, unless you're an adept futures trader, because then you basically need to step into the futures market. That's, that's, I don't think that's the best way to play it. The other side of it, of course, is that if the if an underlying commodity moves by 10, 20%, owning the equities makes a lot of sense because the equities can go 10 times that. So what I would look at doing is just building a diversified portfolio across all these different sectors and breaking that the way that we go about it with Glenorchy is we'll say, 50% roughly rule of thumb of a particular sector. I want to own stuff that's not going to go away. So it's, it's, it's companies with very low debt. It doesn't have, you know, it's free cash flow strong. Da, 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 da. I don't really care necessarily what happens to the share price in the next six, 12 months, whatever. Who cares? I'm looking five years out and I'm saying, are these guys going to be around? Are they going to be still profitable? Cool. Okay. And, and having at least half of your position in a number of companies like that, bearing in mind what we spoke about before with respect to geographical risk. And then you might take some more risk in terms of buying maybe small caps that have got some leverage and so on and so forth. To the extent where you have position sizing where you've maybe only got 1% or 2% in any one equity. Because look, if you get it wrong or some government does something stupid or whatever, or there's a fraud or like, mine gets flooded for example yeah no one could see it coming happens destroys their their cash flows and so on and so forth if that's a one percent position it's first it's not going to go to zero but even if it did you go okay one percent you're like you're fine you can sleep at night one of the biggest things that we have for clients coming to us um wanting us to manage their money isn't necessarily their inability to understand markets or understand sectors it's their it's the psychology it's their, their their inability at times of stress to make logical decisions and to do and, and that the only that just comes with time and experience and, and basically cocking things up a lot and having going through those those 
experiences which which are you know they test you and so they're not pleasant one of the ways that i would suggest if you're going to manage your own money one of the ways i would suggest to, to handling that particular issue is to not be overly exposed to something because when things work out for you well it's fine yes you might look at and go i wish i had more position in this da 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 it's when things don't work out and then the what and i've seen this happen so many times before and it happened to me in the past you land up making your decisions based on what the market's doing so you get you just a bloody ball getting bounced around by forces that you don't have any control over you don't want to be that guy you know so you know go back to the march with the february march sell off that we had gratefully we went into it roughly 70% allocated so we still have about 30% cash and from 15th of march we just started buying like aggressively it kind of bottomed 24ish there so and you're never going to know when the real bottom is no one's got a crystal ball but you look at it and you're like this is nuts you just you like you have to be buying and so it was and i know that there were many clients who came to us after the fact who were like no nah, i want i want you to manage our money because i went through that and they just sold everything and they just freaked out and they just like duh and so you know uh, again try and position yourself so that you're not that guy try and position so that you don't get emotionally whipsawed so that you understand what you bought why you bought it and you can logically look and say has anything really changed if the price has changed because the market's going through a liquidity event has it changed is their company still going to be doing what they're doing in a year's time or whatever the case might be and so but it's difficult to 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 have those internal conversations with yourself if you're getting emotionally torn up because you you're you're down 30% and you don't you think it's going to keep going and you just you know so it's as much an emotional stability that you need as as it is about understanding markets and and looking at valuations and all that other nonsense awesome that's really good advice and much harder to do than uh, to say right you think you're a logical person and i have conviction in this trade and all of this and then the the, the bottom falls out for some reason that's uh, outside of your control and suddenly suddenly that conviction isn't so strong that's for sure chris i want to be aware of your time this was fascinating conversation wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about capitalist exploits what you do where can my listeners find out more about you about capitalist exploits or whatever else you want to talk about sure so the website that we run is capitalistexploits.at or .com will actually get you there as well and the service that we run there is basically research that we do for our private clients that we put out as like a smorgasbord around these sectors and and clients can look at that and choose how to build their own portfolios and that's a weekly publication we put out as well as different alerts special reports monthly q and a's where people can ask me whatever questions they got and we try and do our best to answer them and then the other is is you know for accredited and investors that want to have their capital managed that's what we do at glenorchy so that's glenorchycapital.net 
Well, really appreciate it. I know my listeners are going to really, really enjoy this conversation. So thanks again. There you go. First off, thank you very much for listening all the way through. I hope you got a lot of value out of that conversation. As always, you can find show notes, links, and more at altassetallocation.com. Please share this with anyone you think might be interested and derive any value from this conversation. And as always, you can reach out to me for any feedback or questions. Please give the video a like or even better subscribe on YouTube or your podcast player of choice. This really helps others find the podcast or the video as well. Thanks a lot. Hope everybody has a fantastic day and stay safe out there and invest wisely. Cheers.